Please be seated, and as you're seated, uh, turn in your Bible to, your, your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 16. We'll be looking at Luke chapter 16 today. If you need a Bible, uh, please grab one out of the foyer. We do have one. You can pick one up on your way in. Um, just follow along in God's Word as we go bit by bit, and as we look up different passages and highlight things, seeing it with our own eyes uh, inside of these, these Bibles that are before us. Um, it's very good to be back and, and uh, ministering God's Word. I've missed preaching over the last three weeks. We had a, uh, my wife and I had an anniversary vacation week, and so I didn't preach one week, and then I was in Peru the last two weeks, and um, as, as we ministered down there to the street boys, and so it is very good to be here with you again and ministering God's Word. I've, I've missed the study. Um, we are continue on in our study of the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is listed in Galatians chapter 5, and where we see nine qualities that God develops inside of his, his people through their faith in Jesus Christ. And so the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, which is what we're going to do today, uh, gentleness, and self-control. So today is the seventh of those nine qualities, and we want to look at the fruit of faithfulness, and that's where uh, Luke chapter 16 is going to end up pointing us. But as I was just, over these last couple of weeks, thinking about faithfulness, and thinking about the sermon and, and God's Word, you know, really two things st- stuck out to me. A lot of things stuck out to me, but two things I want to mention on now is just one, you know, the faithfulness of those who serve in international missions. You know, the chance to go over to Peru to see those who are caring for abandoned street boys, those who have no one to care for them, those who have abandoned their kids in dumpsters and other places, and to see the long ongoing care that they give to these children who are abandoned, to give them a, a hope in Jesus and to help them to see their value, their dignity before the Lord, and to give them skills that they need in order to do well. You know, to see that long-term faithfulness of those who serve over in Peru was a great encouragement. And I, I'm really looking forward to the day that our mission team can share with you uh, the things that we were able to do over there. That'll be on August 20th. I was also really struck by uh, my appreciation when people keep their word or organizations keep their word. Uh, while I was over in Peru, many of you know this, but while I was over in Peru, we had a small house fire happen in our house and and uh, our dryer caught on fire. And, and although the, the fire damage was limited to just that dryer unit, the smoke damage was all throughout the house. And so i very appreciative for my wife as she carried so much of this um, while I was away. It gave me a real appreciation for you military spouses who are here because I know that your, you know, your spouse leaves for months and then you're here and all these problems happen. And, and um, Julie had it for one week and you, you know, we had this fire and smoke and everywhere. But I was grateful, I'm grateful for insurance too because you know, there's a lot of smoke damage that's there. It's a little fire damage, but a lot of smoke damage. And so we're appreciative to have uh, a company like that just keeps us word and, and helps us to get resituated where we need to go. Well, Luke uh, chapter 16 is our passage and that is directing us towards thinking about faithfulness today. So if you would read with me uh, God's Read along with me as I read God's word aloud to you today. It's from Luke chapter 16. 
Jesus also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you could no longer be manager. Verse 3, and the manager said to himself, what shall I do, uh, since my master has taken the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write out 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So when it fails, they, so when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Father, you call us to faithfulness, and it's a fruit you develop in our lives. And Father, yet when it comes to faithfulness, uh, we know that we're going to face challenges of it in a lot of ways. And so Father, we want to be a faithful people, faithful to you, faithful to the commitments that we have, faithful to the obligations and the responsibilities you bring into our life. And so we ask that by your power, by your word, by your spirit, that you would encourage us, challenge us, and build us in these things, even as we look in your word today. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus' words in Matthew 10 through 13 are a bit of a masterclass in faithfulness. It's a, it's a simple, clear statement about it, is that a person who is faithful in little things in life is one who is going to uh, most likely be faithful in bigger things. It's a, he's a person who's trusted and a person who is entrusted with more things, both from the people that are around him and also uh, from God himself. On the other side, a a person who's dishonest in little things is the person who likely to be dishonest in the bigger things. And instead of uh, greater trust being established between uh, that person and others, no, trust begins to erode. And even that person before God will find less opportunities, less uh, blessing than those who are faithful with what what they are given. And so we see as Jesus talks about this, you know, we see that faithfulness is something that is established over time. One, one poet wrote this. He said, sow a thought and you reap an action. Sow an action and you reap a habit. Sow a habit and you reap a character. Sow a character and you reap a destiny. It all starts with small things, and those small things build up more and more. And Jesus, even before, before Emerson said that, uh, centuries, millennia before that, Jesus pointed out to us, reminding us that it's the little things that matter. What is, what is, little things point to the bigger. Faithfulness, what is it? It's the quality of a person who keeps his word, who fulfills his promises, someone who does 
what they agree to do. The Bible, the dictionary says it's the firm adherence to a promise. It's the observance of a duty. It has the qualities of dependability, reliability, trustworthiness, loyalty, honesty, and integrity. We can see it's important to talk about it today by two common experiences that I think all of us have. Uh, One is the experience where someone has been unfaithful with us. Maybe it's someone who made a promise to you that they broke. Maybe it is a marriage vows that, has been, that, that have been violated. Maybe it's an employer or an employee who let us down. Or parents who said that they would do things that they never did. And if you've had any experience of a lack of faithfulness, you'll know how just devastating it is. You, you know the hurt that comes from the lack of follow-through. It's, it's not a little thing that we experience in this life. So we can all experience of someone being unfaithful with us. There's a second common experience, though, and, and then that is our temptation to break our own promises and to break our own commitments. So when we talk about the first one, we see how important faithfulness is. Right? We notice it when we're left by unfaithful people. When we talk about the second, about our own temptations, we remember how challenging faithfulness can be and why we need God and his help to remain faithful. The world will not help us on to faithfulness. The world will say, well, be faithful as long as it serves your purposes. Ultimately, be faithful ultimately to yourself. Be true to yourself. That's the message we're going to keep hearing. But God's word calls us to a greater faithfulness, which is bound upon our word and and, and ultimately the Lord himself. Now, the parable that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 16, it forces us to look at our own faithfulness. That can be a little bit of a confusing passage, so I want to work through it, starting in verse 1, where we see a parable that Jesus is telling, and it starts off with a dishonest money manager. He's wasteful, and he is about to be relieved of his, his duties. You know, I think of here as a bad employee, someone who spends money on frivolous trips, who makes bad financial decisions, selfish in the use of scheduling activities, or maybe, you know, some financial advisor. You know, somebody who is squandering some money. Now, back to, now, the owner then, we see, demands his belongings and his accounts back. But in a very real sense, he's too late because the dishonesty of this man is going to get worse and as, as he uh, learns that he's going to lose his job. And so he ultimately grows in the con that he's going to do to, um, to, to the rich man who employed him. This way he, you know, this story, it's one that we remember this parable is one we remember. We talk about it. It's one of those, you know, stories of, of, of dishonest figures in history. I was reading recently of, of another notoriously dishonest man. His name was Count Victor Lustig. Uh, Count Victor Lustig, he hatched a con in the 1920s to, believe it or not, to sell the Eiffel Tower 
right? I mean, his goal was to, to sell the Eiffel Tower. And just given its size and it's so iconic, I mean, part of the con itself was that it's unbelievable that anybody even try to sell the Eiffel Tower. And that's why, one of the reasons he got away with it. So what he did is he posed as a government official, and he said that the government of France was tired of the maintenance of the Eiffel Tower, and so they decided to sell it for scrap metal. And so he got a secret meeting of some you know, metal companies around, and, and he uh, told them of the plan to sell it ultimately for scrap. And so, you know, this guy's a pro because everybody's skeptical. Um, they, don't, um, you know, they, don't, they don't believe him at first. Um, but he was able to convince the people so much to the point that one guy gave him a bribe, and the bribe was to put him to the top of the list. So when it gets sold, he wants to be the top of the list. And the, in return, he gave him some official-looking documents, which turned out to be forgeries. When the man went in to, to ask about these forms that he had, he found out they were forgeries. And uh, Dr. and uh, Count Lustig was nowhere to be found. I think he'd fled to Australia together with his, with, with, with his money. It was, it was a real steal of a deal, Right. But to, to show that, that something, you know, characters formed over time, do you know he ended up getting caught? Because he came back in order to do it again. And that's when he got caught. But anyways. So our, our, our dishonest man, his con that he's going to do, you see uh, the problem that he has in verse 3. He, he can't really work. He doesn't want to work. He doesn't have real skills. No one's going to trust him to do this kind of work in the future. And so... This is why he hatches his con, deciding to steal from the owner to get out of his troubles and to buy some friends in high places. And so he reaches out, we see in verses 4 through 7, to the people who owed his master money, and he, he bargains with them to reduce the amount of debt they have, whether it was in oil or whether it was in grain, um, in order to earn their favor. And so again, in verse 1, we see what? He's a wasteful person, but now we're seeing just how um, awful he is. We see his corruption, his dishonesty, his stealing. It's a lot of money. He's been unfaithful with a little, but now he's unfaithful with much. And so by the time we get to verse 8, the rich man has lost a lot of money, and he strangely commends the man for his dishonesty. You know, we see his, you know, what does he commend him for? Um, You know, his absolute commitment to himself. His absolute consistency in his dishonesty. Um, you know, this man had already lost a lot. Maybe he counted it as, as um, you know, lost anyway. So, you know, sunk costs. You know, why worry about it? I'm just glad to be rid of the man. Now, when Jesus gives a parable, you know, we want to narrow into what his point is with that parable. You know, it's not to be distracted by the truth in business or dealing with debt or anything like that. There's a point that he's making. And the point that is, as dishonest as people of the world tend to be in order to get their way and being shrewd with one another, so on the flip side, God's people are to be consistent in their honesty and consistent in their devotion to God and to his kingdom. I mean, there is, on the, on, on the world side, 100% consistency in the love of self. And Jesus says, have a consistent zeal for God and his kingdom. 
So this man's dishonesty was revealed through his work over years, just became greater in the end. People are always showing us who they are. They're telling us what they're going to do in the future. We're always showing others who we are, what kind of people we are. And we're, in a lot of ways, we make our future actions predictable. It's in the little ways that we display our faith now that we show what we do when the bigger issues come up in life. And long before we're called to the big things, we're called to faithfulness in the little. That's what, why Jesus in Luke 16 the end of verse 8, he says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. They are hard on one another. They'll lie, cheel, and steep from one another. That's his point. He says, And I tell you, make friends with yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that when it falls, that when it fails, you may, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He's saying, Do something good with the resources that you're given. Be faithful with what God has given to you. Because we show demonstrate faithfulness in little things, like the way that we handle money. Jesus' point is use money, use those resources to serve others, to help those in need, to do things in service to God. He, he calls it unrighteous wealth. Not that money is evil in and of itself, but it's unrighteous and that it won't save you. Money does not have the power to wash away your sins. Money will not make you better. It doesn't make you worse but it will show what you really are. It will test your faithfulness. You'll show what you're really committed to through your money. It shows discontent and greed inside of our, our hearts. It shows there's a lack of faith in God. It's gonna reveal that. It's gonna reveal our love for the world. Even though that money can't save us, people treat it like it can. People treat money like it will bring ultimate happiness like it's an ultimate goal of life to amass greater wealth. We can see it in the emotional fluctuations that we hit. If something good financially happens, we're happy. And when something bad happens, you know, it leads us into an emotional loop. But if we begin to think of money as a tool to serve God, and we begin to think of our lives in terms of faithfulness instead of amassing wealth, you know, we might flip the script that we use. Instead of worrying about our net worth, we might be thinking about, you know, the worth of our giving. How much have we been able to give away this year, this month, this decade, over our life? And how much can we give away in helping of others, in building God's kingdom? We need to see ourselves as stewards of God. Psalm 24.1 reminds us that everything we have comes from the Lord. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That means the earth and everything in it belongs to God. The world and those who dwell therein. Unless we begin to forget that God owns everything in this world, we can look at Psalm 50, verse 12, where God says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. And just like the rich man entrusted his financial well-being to the money manager, so God gives us what we have so that we can use it ultimately for his purposes. The question is, are we being faithful in that? Are we being true to the purposes of God in it? Our money, our marriages, children, our cars, our houses, our jobs, our bodies, these are things that come from God. Are we faithful to him in it? It's where Jesus' words come to us. The one who's faithful in little is also faithful 
in much. So how are we to be faithful? People, what do we need? I want to look at three things, three questions we can ask ourselves. The first question is, is are we faithful to our obligations? Are we faithful to our obligations? So, you know, we need to remember that we do have certain obligations in this life, and we need to remember where they, where they come from. There are some obligations we take on ourselves by vows that we make, promises that we take, and there are other things that God just gives to us and says you're responsible for them, even if you haven't asked for them. Now, there's something in the human heart that will recoil at obligation. Like, oh, I have to do that? Don't you know what that's going to cost me? You know, do I really have to carry through with that? Or maybe I didn't mean it. My fingers were crossed or something. You know, when, when I did Certainly it couldn't have meant this when I made that promise. Well, we don't want obligations other than the ones that are convenient. The ones we take on ourselves. But God does give us certain obligations. And as he gives them to us, as others rely on us, we better take them seriously. So... One set of obligations we need to consider are the obligations that God gives to us as our creator. Remember how God is the owner of all things and everything we have are things that he has given to us? Well, those things come with certain responsibilities, whether we ask for it or not. When God created Adam and Eve um, in Genesis 1, 27, he said a couple things about them, which is really important. The first of all we see in verse 27 is that God created man in his own image And if you jump down to verse 28, he calls them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. So here God is creating these image bearers to represent him on earth, to do the things that he has them to do, reflect his care, to reflect his his love, to reflect his justice, reflect that on earth, and then to do it um, in the world that he has put them, in, in, in the environment in which they find themselves. And even as sin has come and it's dulled the image of God, even as sin has come into the world um, and affected so much of how it operates, this mandate still stands over every one of us. We're still in God's image, and we still have a responsibility to have dominion over the earth. And so that mandate applies to how we use our money, how we interact with others, how we worship, we have responsibility to be faithful with what God has given to us. But the very fact that you have material possessions shows that you have a duty to use them well. I mean, and that's an inescapable reality for every person on earth. Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have a responsibility to faithfulness. Every one of us will give an account to God for the way that we use his gifts. And if you haven't been faithful with the use of those gifts, as he would call you to, you, you're going to see your need of a Savior. You're going to see your need of a Savior. And Jesus came to forgive sins. He came to forgive our mismanagement of God's resources to reconcile us to God so that we can faithfully serve him in the future. All right, so another set of obligations are the ones that come because we are Christians. Right? While, while all people have responsibilities before God, when we receive Jesus Christ as Lord, we make certain promises to him. We promise to listen to his word. We promise to obey. He calls us to be part of, of a church. He calls us to evangelize the world. He commands us to love. 
You know, these are commands that God gives us that we're called to obey. And by, by becoming a Christian, following Christ, they become our obligations in the world. We promise to worship him as our Lord and our God. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So the obligation of the Christian life is to follow Jesus wherever he leads. There's a, there's a death to self, but there's a life that we find inside of that. But we take on responsibilities, obligations to be faithful to, even as we become Christians. Are you being faithful to that? A third set of obligations we need to be faithful to are the ones that we do choose for ourselves. In James chapter 5 and other passages of the scripture, we are reminded of our need to be faithful to our word. James 5, 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. The overall principle is that, you know, when you say you're going to do something, do it. When you make a promise, follow through with that promise. And that's where our character is proven. In marriage, you promise to love and respect your spouse, to be sexually pure, to endure with the other person in sickness and in health. As long as you both shall live, a, a lifelong relationship of growing love and care. When you take membership vows, you, you commit to worship the Lord together and help the body of Christ move together in purity and in peace. As an elder inside of the body of Christ, I, I, I make certain vows you know, obligations that I come under in order to maintain the peace and the purity of the church and to work under a doctrinal standard and a, and a life standard as a minister of God's church. So there's things that we say, but there's also implicit obligations we take under ourselves as well. When you become a parent, you know, we don't take a vow, at least until we um, have them baptized, right? But it's something that you're called to be faithful in your children are counting on it. When you take a job, you, you promise to do your best in that position, right? And so, so we make explicit and implicit um, obligations upon ourselves. One of the problems with sexual immorality, sexual impurity, sex outside of marriage, is it makes certain physical commitments, but it refuses to take the, the verbal commitment. And so it's communicating one thing on one side, but it's communicating something else on the other side. And that's why there's confusion. And that's why there's inability to really grow together in intimacy, like God has, has planned for relationships to grow. So as, as we enter in these, sort of res, these relationships, through explicit commitments or implicit commitments, you know, we learn to count on one another. People count on us as spouses, as, as friends, family, church members, employees, employers. I mean, faithfulness matters. Will people be able to, to count on you? Will be faithful to God where he's put you? That doesn't always mean that it's easy, and that is what leads us to my second point today. Are we faithful even when faithfulness is hard? Are we faithful even when faithfulness is hard? It's easy to remain faithful when times are easy, but faithfulness is required even when it costs us something. Even we're going to have to give up something else. In fact, that's exactly when we prove what our genuine character is. Will we be a liar and break the promise, or we keep them and rely on the grace of God? When marriage becomes difficult because of financial stresses, 
children or sickness, God still calls us to be faithful. When a husband or wife lets us down or sins against us is somehow less than we'd hope they'd be, we're still called to be faithful and respecting them and loving them, maintaining that relationship. There are ways that people are unfaithful even without getting a divorce. There's unfaithfulness through abuse. There's unfaithfulness through adultery. There's unfaithfulness through abandonment, even inside of a relationship. These are wrong. Faithfulness to our marriage requires we honor our marriage vows, which at many times will require us to deny ourselves if we're going to do that. I mean, the application of faithfulness is self-denial. There, there's no question about that. There are times if you're going to honor a vow, whether in, be a faithful person, it's going to mean you're going to have to deny yourself in your marriage, in the church, at your job, with your children, in the neighborhood, whatever. There are times you just are going to have to deny yourself, and that's part of faithfulness. It happens in our jobs when they're monotonous. Employer does not treat us like we think we should be treated. We're still called to be faithful. Even when parenting becomes overbearing, we're still called to love our children. They, they, they count on it. And even when there is a threat of persecution in our lives, we're still called to be faithful to God and to our confession of Jesus Christ. That's why in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 8, Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Men will also acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men be denied before the angels of God. Jesus is talking about persecution or difficulty when you're talking about your faith with somebody who's opposed to that faith, whether it's through ridicule or pain. And Jesus says there's still a call in that difficult stage to be faithful. I'll carry you in it. There's a reward in it. He reminds us of that. So how do we remain faithful even when tough times I remember learning this from Psalm chapter 50. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. Where we see, we read this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. And somebody pointed out that this, that this, this trouble that's faced happens when? Right after you take a vow. Right, it's a response to the vows that we take and we have God's promise. So we call upon him, he'll strengthen us in it. In fact, that's how we experience the power of God is, is by trusting him to remain faithful, trusting him in that self-denial, trusting him as we look to the, the bigger picture of his glory and we see his deliverance and we see his glory and we know the pleasure of walking in him. Some people are afraid to make commitments because they're afraid they're going to somehow not be able to fulfill that commitment. But reminded, call upon me and I will deliver you. Trust God to work through those things. And that leads us to our final point, that God helps us be faithful because he is faithful. He helps us be faithful because he is faithful. Are we being taught by the faithfulness of God. Turn to Exodus 34. In Exodus 34, we have this explanation of a time when God was going to reveal himself and he was going to show himself to Moses. And he has this limited amount of time to explain himself 
to say who he is. And guess what term he uses when he is going to describe himself? You can probably guess, faithful, right? Look at uh, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In other words, if God says he's going to do something, he is going to do it. If he makes a promise to his people, he is going to keep it. His very nature is to make promises and to keep them. When he promises to punish evil, we even see it in there. We know that he will punish evil. He will be 100% consistent with his character, and he will be consistent with his word. He will do what he says. We love Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. Again, a reminder of God's faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that's true, whether we feel it or not. I mean, there are times we go through great difficulty and we wonder, God, are you still faithful? Do you remain faithful even when I'm experiencing this difficulty and this suffering? And so that time we're reminded in Psalm 119, verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you've afflicted me. Sometimes when times are hard, we can doubt that God is good. We may wonder, is he really going to fulfill the things that he's promised for us to do? What we're reminded of is is that God will use those afflictions for his good purposes, his own glory, and our good. He never promises a trouble-free life. What he does promise is use those troubles for good. It's in his faithfulness the afflictions of God come. How, do, how does he show his faithfulness? He shows it most clearly in sending Jesus into the world. 1 Corinthians 1.9 reminds us again, God is faithful, but what do we read next? By whom you are called in the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, I mean, do you want to know how certain God's promises are? They are absolutely certain because these are promises that God made to his own son. These are promises that God made to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and I have sinned. You and I have violated God's commands. But Jesus never did. And God, you can read throughout the Old Testament. It says, do these things and you'll live. Do these things and you'll live. Do these things and you'll have life. And we may not have done all those things that God calls us to, but you know who did? Jesus did. He has life. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He's done everything, and God has fulfilled his promises to him. And so you want to know the assurance that we have in the promises of God? We need only to look to Jesus Christ, to unite ourselves to him, because God will fulfill his promises to Jesus and all those who are connected to him through faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved because he brings life. His promises are certain. Even that promise of forgiveness. If you look at 1 John 1.9, I love 1 John 1.9. You, you may have 1 John 1.9 memorized. If you don't, you should memorize it. We talk about it a lot. Again, it talks about God's faithfulness. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How is he faithful? 
I mean, yeah, he said he'd forgive our sins, but you know what? He's faithful to his own son, Jesus, that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for sins. They were taken away. He's faithful to the work of Jesus on the cross to pay the penalty for the sin. He is faithful to his plan to have a church for his son. God is committed to redeeming a people for his son, to to providing a bride for them where their sins are washed clean and they're brought in holiness before their savior. He's faithful to that promise. And so as you confess your sins before God, receiving Jesus Christ as Lord and savior, you know he washes you clean. He's faithful and just, he's true to his word. He's gonna do what he said he did as his very promise to his son as well as his promise to you. He will forgive. And then, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I want to look at verse 23. Gives this wonderful benediction here. But it's a benediction that speaks to this question of, am I going to be able to make it? I mean, Christian life is hard. There's these difficult things that are happening. And, and you know, I just... It's hard to keep the faith. It's hard to keep moving. And, and, and I want to, but life gets so difficult at times. And we have this wonderful benediction given in 1 Thessalonians 5 about God's faithfulness. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless to the coming of our Lord Jesus. And if you're anything like me, you read like words like completely, your whole spirit and soul and body, and you think, man, I have a long way to go before all that is happening. Maybe you get discouraged in that. But what's the next verse? He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The work he started in you, he will finish. And he'll finish it according to his faithful plan for you, but his faithful plan for his son, a bride, a people, for his son, to dwell with him forever in glory and in heaven. And finally, we recognize that God's faithfulness is much greater than our unfaithfulness. 2 Timothy 2.13 reminds us that even when we're unfaithful, God remains faithful. Faithful to his promise, faithful to his son, faithful to his glory, and then faithful to us. Even our own weaknesses do not negate the powerful promises of God that we find in Jesus Christ. Praise his name, praise his faithfulness, and may his faithfulness spur on our own for the calling and obligations we have before us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, every time we need you, we find you faithful. You're always faithful. Lord, others are counting on us, husbands, wives, children, coworkers, neighbors, the poor, especially our fellow church members, Lord, they are counting on us and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful. Faithful to you, faithful to them. Help us, Lord, first to see, though, your faithfulness to us. Remind us of what Jesus did and let that gospel truth fuel our own faithful commitment to your promises. Help us to live by grace. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.